chapter 8. I'll read this introductory paragraph. There is only one God, and He alone is great. All other beings and things are totally dependent upon His goodness and strength. A comparison should never be made between God and any other creature or thing. As the self-existent Creator, He is infinitely above His dependent and finite creation. The mightiest archangel is no closer to being like God than the tiniest microbe. God is incomparable. In the context of the body of believers, this truth is extremely important. There are no great men or women of God in the Scriptures or in church history. There are only weak, sinful, and faithless men and women of a great and merciful God. Now, as with anything that we might say about God, and even with what we have recorded for us in the Scriptures, we have to always keep in mind that the only toolkit that we have for communication is the, the words and phrases and language and experience and understanding that we have as creatures. That's all we've got to work with. In the language of Ecclesiastes, we are under the sun. God is not. God is above and beyond all of that. All that we have to work with is under the sun. It's creature. God is not a part of the created world. He transcends creation. Therefore, nothing within creation, our words, our understanding, our experience, nothing within creation can relate God to us in a direct, parallel fashion. Nothing that we say about God can truly, fully convey who He is. Such is the case with all of His attributes, and that is the case with this statement concerning the greatness of God. The term great, in the words in Scripture that are translated into English as great, and the English word great itself, these are all terms of comparison. That's what the word great is, as we'll see in a moment. So it might seem ironic for him to begin in the introduction of this chapter by saying God is incomparable. No, no comparison can be made. And yet we're going to say that God is great, which is by definition a, a comparison word. He alone is great. He says, a comparison should never be made between God and any other creature or thing. And yet at the same time, to say that God is great is in some sense to make a comparison. But when we talk about the greatness of God, remember we're talking about a greatness that is in a category all of its own. We're, we're using a term. We are borrowing a word. Human, human language. Translating it into English language. We're borrowing a word within the, the confines of finite creation to try to describe a God who is indescribable and who is beyond our words. Now, in this chapter, we're going to look specifically, we're going to turn to 10 passages, passages of Scripture. All of them are from the Old Testament. 
And all of them use the same Hebrew word translated as great. That word is gadol. G-A-D-O-L. Or gadol. That word is defined as, and it's interesting when you see a Hebrew word translated into English as great, and then you look up, well, what's the definition of the Hebrew word? It says great. I'm like, I, won't, I need more than that. So I'm trying to think outside of just that one word, great, and more expounded upon definition would be remarkable or out of the ordinary in degree, magnitude, or effect. The English word, great. These are definitions I looked up. A term of comparison, considerably above the normal or average. A term of comparison, denoting more magnitude or extension than something else or beyond what is usual. That's what the word great means. In other words, the Hebrew word sounds like it means pretty much the same thing as the English word, and they are comparison terms. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. When God created, quote, two great lights, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. What does that mean? The, these lights were large in size and they were vast in the extent to which they could illuminate the earth. They were the great lights. When God created great sea creatures, well, they were creatures in the sea that were bigger than the Small sea creatures, therefore they were great in comparison. When God promised Abram that He would make of him a great nation, well, He meant that His descendants would exceed many other nations in number. When a great darkness fell upon Abram in his deep sleep, it was a darkness unlike anything he had ever experienced in his normal nightly slumbers. It wasn't just a darkness. It was a great darkness in comparison to normal darkness. When a, quote, great cry went throughout all Egypt at the death of the firstborn sons, it was a cry of lamentation unlike anything, any other affliction that Egypt had ever known. It was a great cry. That's the idea behind this word. And oftentimes this word is used to form other words... And it's translated loud or high or old or heavy or bitterly. Adjectives like that. All of this brings us back, I think, to maybe the best way to think of this, a word that I used earlier. That's the word remarkable. It's remarkable. Worthy of remark. Worthy of comment or noteworthy. Something that's great... The reason that you would describe it as great is because you're saying this thing doesn't, it doesn't pass by without making mention, without comment. This is not normal. If it's great in size, well then its size is worthy of note. You see it and it catches your attention. I can't help but comment. It's great in size. If it's great in power, well then its power is beyond Normal power. It's, it's striking how much power it might have. If it's great in majesty, well, it grabs your attention and incites awe and wonder in your heart. Noteworthy, remarkable. In all this, we see that great is actually a pretty generic term that could, could apply very broadly and usually 
depending on what you're, what, what's being addressed, you need more information. There's more explanation that goes into the detail. What, what, what was great about it? What is the remarkable thing? Something more has to be explained. And, and it's similar with God. We can say that God is great, but then the question becomes, well, what do, me, what do we mean when we say that God is great? What about God is great? Can we be more specific? We can be more specific. Here's the, the, the startling thing. God is the only one with whom or about whom we don't actually need to be more specific. Just like His name, I am. Period, end of statement. There needs no qualification. Same with God is great. What about Him is great? No, God is great. He is greatness. Everything about Him. He is in Himself great. Now this chapter begins by giving us several texts that just show that God is clearly described as being great. And the first one we can turn to is Psalm 95, 3. Psalm 95.3 For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Now both God and King carry implications of care, of provision, and of protection. So this text tells us that Yahweh is a great King and a great God, or a great God and a great King. When it comes to care as God and King, His care for us far surpasses that of anyone or anything else. It's remarkable the way that He cares for us. His provision for us vastly extends beyond what anyone or anything else could even think to provide. All all of our provision for life and, and everything physically, comes from the earth that God created. Spiritual provision, it all comes from Him. He is the source of spiritual life. His protection of us, both now and for eternity, reaches to degrees that we don't even know about. He is great as a God, great as a King in care and provision and protection. That's what this verse is teaching. He is a great God and a great King. The next text is... Daniel 9, 4. Turn there with me. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Daniel 9, 4. This is Daniel praying. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas... O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. So here, Daniel prays. He states that our God, Daniel's God and our God, is the great and awesome God. He's the only one in His class 
He's not one of many great and awesome gods. He's the great and awesome God. And in this verse, we could ask, how is His greatness explained in this verse? Well, it goes on to say, He keeps His covenant and loving kindness toward His people, or His, his hesed, his, his covenant love and faithfulness toward His people. So God's covenant keeping and God's covenant love are great. Far exceeding even our own conceptions of, of faithfulness and truth. We, we have ideas about what it means to make a covenant and keep a covenant. What it means to, to love and to continue to love. But God's covenant keeping, God's covenant making, covenant keeping and covenant love for His people is great. It's, 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 it's remarkable. It's, it's beyond our comprehension. We might make a covenant and we might keep a covenant, but God's covenant making and God's covenant keeping transcend any notion of loyalty and goodness and love that we might have in our experience. The, the, most, the most loyal and faithful person you've ever known or met or could describe, they pale in comparison to the great covenant keeping God, His covenant keeping and covenant love, His has said, are great. Psalm 57.10 says, For your steadfast love, same, same word, is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, beyond our comprehension, out of our sight, extending far above anything we can comprehend. The note in the in the book referring to this, the text in Daniel speaks of the word awesome. The word awesome comes from the Hebrew word yare, which means to fear, revere, or be afraid. Even the smallest revelation of God's greatness and holiness would strike even the most splendid of His creatures with astonishment, reverence, and even fear. God is awesome. And therefore, He is worthy of the greatest reverence. Notice He says, God's greatness would strike even the most splendid of His creatures with astonishment and reverence and fear. How do we know that's true? Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. The seraphim the holy angels who have been in God's presence and in God's servants from their creation cover their faces. They have not yet grown accustomed to His greatness. They've not gotten used to it. They've not slowly pulled back their wings that they might see a little. He's too great for that. He's too great for them to behold. Too great even to be looked upon by the most splendid of creatures. The next passage is Psalm 104, verse 1. Psalm 104, 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord... My God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. God's greatness here is connected to splendor and majesty. Splendor 
is defined as magnificence, impressively beautiful, elaborate or extravagant. That's what splendor is. Majesty is that character trait which, which strikes awe in those who would behold the, the majestic one. He is clothed with splendor and majesty, magnificence and and awe-inspiring glory. The note here says God's splendor and majesty are not some external things that He puts on. That needs to be said because it says you're clothed with majesty and splendor. It's not like He's put something on. No, this is who He is. Unlike men, God has no need to add something to Himself in order to enhance His greatness or His beauty. God in His being and in the manifestation of His glory is great. He's great. God is great in beauty. God is extravagantly great. God is impressively great. There is no beauty that we can imagine that can even compare to God's beauty, His splendor. Most of us can't remember, couldn't answer the question if we were asked, what is the most astonishing, beautiful, awe-inspiring thing you've ever seen? We, 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 would, we, we waffle back and forth. It was probably this. No, 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 no. no. It, it, was, it was probably actually this. Well, no, now that I think about it, maybe it was this. And even if we can name that one thing that we could say, this thing was the most awe-inspiring, the most splendid, the most magnificent thing I've ever behold, even if we could name that thing, we couldn't really remember or recreate that moment, that feeling. It's lost. It's gone. It's short-lived. Every created beauty is short-lived beauty. But the beauty of God, the splendor of God is very great. Brothers and sisters, I assure you that when we see it, we will never forget it. And it will not grow old to us. It will not fade. It will only advance. There will only be an excelling of that impression of God's glory and majesty. Why? Because He's great. He does, it's not something that we would say, well, God was remarkable, but now that I've beheld Him for 30 million years, it's really kind of getting old. No, we would say the longer we've been here, the more remarkable, the more awe-inspiring it has been. You don't have to turn to these. Deuteronomy 7, 21, The Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. This is who God is. He is great. He is above. He's beyond, surpassing, exceeding, transcending, outliving, outlasting, outworking, outloving. Everything that He does is remarkable, we could say unusual, noteworthy, captivating. His name is great, Psalm 99.3. He made the great light, Psalm 136.7. 
The heavens and the earth were made by His great power. Jeremiah 32.17 He is great in counsel. Jeremiah 32.19 When He inflicted terror in Egypt, it was a great terror. Jeremiah 32.21 His anger is called great indignation. Jeremiah 32.37 His day is called the great and awesome day of the Lord. Joel 2.31 His trumpet is called the great trumpet. Isaiah 27.13 When He comes in judgment, it's called a great slaughter. Isaiah 36.4 And a great destruction. Jeremiah 6.1 His self-revelation is called a great light. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Psalm 119, 156 says that His mercies are great. Isaiah 54, 7, His compassion is great. And then we get into the New Testament and Hebrews 2, 3 says that His salvation is called so great a salvation. Everything about Him is great. There's nothing about God that isn't great. He's never had a passing... A, a, even if we could conceive of God in thinking this way, this way, He's never had even a passing thought that if it were made known to us would not immediately baffle all of the minds of men. The very least of all of His works have stumped the greatest minds from the dawn of time. This week I've seen what uh, was described or uh, advertised as the most detailed picture of a single human cell to date. You know, they've, they've zoomed in, they've got microscopes and things, they've, they've gotten pictures, they said this is the most detailed picture that we even have. I, I, I don't think I could count the colors, number one, I don't know if they, they make those up or not, but my eyes, as I looked, I couldn't comprehend the complexity of it. I couldn't understand it. It was as if I was looking into almost a, a picture that just went into and disappeared into nothingness. Almost like it was infinite. And this is a single human cell that God thought into existence. He is great. Nothing that He does, the smallest thing that He's ever done in our, in our perception is great. It's marvelous. It's magnificent. God is great. He wills these things into existence because He's great. And that leads to the next text, which is Psalm 145.3. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. This is God's greatness described. It's unsearchable. And the note here says that God's greatness is beyond investigation or inquiry. It cannot be searched out or measured. It would be far easier to count the sand in all the oceans and deserts of the world, or to number all the stars in the heavens than to measure the greatness of God. 
if we cannot even fully investigate the works of God within creation itself, what He's given us, then the greatness of God in God Himself, which transcends creation, surely we would say it's unsearchable. It's past finding out. There's no measure to God's greatness. If we were to count grains of sand or stars, we've got a standard to go by. One is one. And one plus one is two. And two plus one is three. We, we can count. But to measure God's greatness, there's no standard. We don't, we don't know even how to count that, how to measure it, how to be, even begin to quantify it because it is simply great. He is great and is greatness itself. His greatness is unsearchable. The next section goes to show how God's greatness is affirmed and also contrasted with with others, false gods and idols. Psalm 77 verse 13. Psalm 77 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Now here we have His greatness affirmed by a rhetorical question. What God is great like our God? The answer is, of course, none gods. None. There are none. In the affirmative, there is no God great like our God. And in... In Hebrew parallelism, in this verse, the the holiness of God is here paralleled with His greatness. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great? You would would think that maybe it would go on to say uh, what God is holy like our God. But here greatness is laid alongside of it as if to say God's greatness is a holy greatness. It's a separate greatness, a, a, a completely other than greatness, a greatness beyond and outside of separate from any other greatness. God's way is holy and there's none like Him. The next one is Psalm 86, 10. Psalm 86, 10. David says, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone... Our God. Here we see God's greatness, or one of the ways that God's greatness is made known to us, is in His works. You are great and do wondrous deeds. And then, how does He compare? How does this compare with others? You alone are God. There is no other like Him. Nobody else is doing the works God does. As we were saying this morning, they ain't making new water. Nobody else is doing that. Nobody else is doing what God has done. There is no other. He's done it, and it remains steadfast. Whether it's general revelation, or through creation and providence, or special revelation in God's Word, all that He has done continuously reveals His pure, incomparable greatness. Psalm 95.3 is is, uh, the next passage, I think, that's uh, referenced there. If not, I've got it in my notes, and so we'll read it. Psalm 95.3 For the Lord is a great God 
and a great king above all gods. God's greatness exalts him above all so-called gods and human kings. Let me read you another passage just to, to put this into perspective. Revelation 6, 14 to 17. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men, and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The picture that I want you to see here is that the mightiest of history's human kings, the greatest men, will someday tremble before God's Lamb. The greatest we've got. Even the mightiest and most powerful men on earth right now, the, 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 the greatest of men walking the earth right now, they present no hindrance to the conquering power of God. None of their plans introduce any new data into the system that God must examine before He carries out human history. No act of Congress or parliament, or royal fiat, can move God to render even a second thought to His eternal decree which is fixed and established in the heavens. It's settled. They are merely as pawns in His hand. They are pieces being moved at His will. He is controlling them. The greatest men who late, like, like Nebuchadnezzar, who will look at the things that they've built and they will say to themselves, look at all my greatness, look at what I have done. And God says, you've done nothing. You have merely operated according to the course that I have declared. Our greatest great ones of the greatest generation in the greatest nations are nothing. Nothing to Him. If the, if the nations are but the dust on the scale. Then what, what, is, what is one ruler who will be here for a few years and gone? What is a president who has eight years? What, what are kings who might have a, a, a 40 or 50 or 60? They're nothing. Nothing. God alone is great. Psalm 135 verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our God is, or that our Lord is above all gods. And here, the, the only thing that I would draw your attention to is that the psalmist speaks from experience. I know that the Lord is great. He knows. Now, how does he know? Well, we could go back and read the psalm. Verse 4, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his possession. Verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deeps. Uh, go down to verse 8, he smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt. In other words, the psalmist says, I've heard and I've seen of the great things that God has done. Therefore, I know that he is great. 
I've, I've, I've studied it. I've sought it out. I've come to this conclusion. He's great. You want to know how great God is? Then just look at what He's done. Jeremiah 10.6 says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. And great is your name in might. God is great and there is no other like Him in greatness. Then the fourth and final section just addresses the application, our, our attitude, our response, our life. If these things are true, then, then, then what should we do? What should we think? How should we live? And the first passage is Deuteronomy 32 verse 3. So you can turn there. Deuteronomy 32.3 For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. In other words, if God is great, then we ought to proclaim it. We ought to tell it. And we ought to ascribe it to Him. Whether that's in public, in conversation whether that's in private, in your prayers, like we saw with Daniel. That's the way Daniel began his prayer. Study the prayers of the Bible. Very often you'll see this is the way they begin, is just by ascribing greatness to God. There needs to be room in our prayers for ascribing greatness to God. Ascribe it to Him. First Chronicles 16.25 is the next passage. First Chronicles 16.25 For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. So in light of God's greatness, how, what should be our attitude? How should we live? He should be praised. We should praise Him, and we should fear Him. Think long and hard on the greatness of God as it's been manifested in His, His mighty works and in His salvation. Think on it. Note the way that the term great is used in Scripture to describe everything that God has done. Just do a word search. Great. Search it. You'll see. Everything, somewhere in Scripture, everything that God has done is described using the word great. And then live moment by moment in the conscious awareness of the presence of this great God. That's what it means to walk in the fear of God. The conscious awareness of the near presence of the God who is. Think of what He has done. What did He do to Egypt? What could He do to you? What could He do to your household? What could He do to this nation? What could He do to the plans of men? And keep that in your mind and walk before Him as if you really believe that God can in a moment at His pleasure do the most awesome, bring the most awesome and terrible destruction or the greatest of blessings in an instant at His pleasure as He wills. Live before Him that way. Fear Him. Praise Him and fear Him. Psalm 104.1 is mentioned again. We've, we've read it, and I'll read it in your hearing again. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. And here he explains the word bless comes from the Hebrew word barak. When directed toward God, it denotes a joyful exclamation of admiration, thanksgiving, 
and praise. If God is so great, then there should be joyful exclamations of admiration and thanksgiving and praise. Test yourself. Examine yourself. How often are you embarrassed to, to, to verbalize a joyful exclamation of adoration and thanksgiving and praise? I, I, have, I have been so embarrassed that many times when I... It, it, two seconds too late, I realized right there I could have glorified God in a conversation and I didn't do it. I missed out. Or I know that I could and I don't because I'm embarrassed. I wonder that it, that it might make me look strange. But if God is great, then it only makes sense. It's re, he's remarkable, worthy of remark. How can anything be brought up that He has done and He not be mentioned? Bless the Lord, the psalmist says, Oh, my soul, He's speaking to the inner man. He's stirring Himself up to praise the Lord. Our affections have to be involved in worship and adoration or it's worthless. Like we said this morning, we're not, we're not led, uh, led along or strung along slaves to our affections. We control them. And we see this throughout the Psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I'm telling you what to do, soul. Bless Him. Well, I just don't feel... I'm just not feeling it. Then bring your mind to contemplate. Get in the Word and, and stir up what you know about His works and His mighty deeds. Go and find Him out until you're stirred up by who He is, and then bless His name. Bless the Lord. Psalm 111 verse 2 is, is another verse that's used here to apply this. Psalm 111 verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. If God is so great, then study His works. Study His works. The word study here means to seek or investigate with intent. Go into the Scriptures and study what He's done. I've heard this verse used to apply to church history, the works of God. Study what God has been doing throughout history. Study creation. You want to be a biologist? By all means, go for it. Study what He's done. Study His works. And then Psalm 138.5 is, is the last text. Psalm 138 verse 5, And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. How should we respond? If God is so great, then what should we do? We should sing. We should sing. Now who is they? They will sing. Notice what it says in verse 4. All the kings of the earth will give you thanks, O Lord when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing. It's the kings of the earth will sing. I want to point out here that status among mortal men relieves no one of the duty to sing. 
to sing of and to the Lord. Why? Because He's great. And so we must sing. To fail to sing of and to the Lord, you may think, well, I'm being quiet or I'm, I'm just not going to be too loud. But you are actually making a very loud and very strong statement to those who you can see and into the unseen spiritual world, to refuse to sing is to say to all seen and unseen that you don't believe that there's anything noteworthy or remarkable about this God. There's nothing so great about Him. It is to say, I don't see anything worth praising. Imagine the angels observing our worship, looking upon us, and we don't sing? Do you, can you understand what, that, what they would think about that? I, I don't understand what they would think about that. What, that doesn't make any sense to them. That's all they do is worship and serve and sing. These creatures, they've been redeemed by the blood of our King and they don't sing? It's a strong statement. God is great. I didn't prepare a conclusion. It's blank here. But the whole time I've been thinking of... Uh, S.M. Lockridge. I wish I could describe him to you. He's great. Let's stand and sing hymn number 683 together.